My subject this morning is risk and the cause of God. So let me begin with the definition of risk. I define risk as any action that exposes a person to the possibility of loss or injury. An action that exposes a person to the possibility of loss or injury. If you take a risk, you might lose some money. You might lose faith. You might lose your life. Or what's worse, in some risks, you might lose other people's money. You might jeopardize their life and put others in danger. And so, someone might say a wise and loving person will take no risks, right? It's not wise to to jeopardize your own goods, and it's not loving to put another person in danger. And so wise and loving people take no risks, right? Maybe, maybe not. What if the circumstances were such that not to take a risk were to result in loss and jeopardize life? What if the circumstances were such that a successful risk would bring benefit to many people and failure in that risk would only mean hurt to you? Then what would love do? It may not be always loving to choose the comfort and security of non-risk when the cause of God and the good of His people is at stake? Let me ask another question. Why is there such a thing as risk? Risk exists because ignorance exists. If there were no ignorance, risk would be impossible. The only reason anybody can take a risk is because we are ignorant about the future. Therefore, God can take no risks. It is impossible that the divine mind should ever risk anything. In fact, I find it very dishonoring to God when people talk about God taking risk by sending His Son into the world as though it were not totally planned out that He would be betrayed and handed over to the Gentiles and the Jews. God can take no risks because he's ignorant of no eventualities. All of his choices have results and he knows what every one of the results will be. Therefore, he can expose himself to no unforeseen possibilities and can take no risks. We, on the other hand, are not God. We are ignorant. We live in a sea of ignorance. Have you ever thought about how ignorant we are? We know nothing virtually about the details of the next five minutes, let alone the details of the next five hours, five days, five years, or five centuries. We live in a sea of ignorance. And God wills for us to live in this sea of ignorance. He wills for us not to know 99 and 44 one hundredths percent of what will happen in the future. We do not know. Consider, for example, 
what the Lord says through James in his letter, chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and trade there and get gain when you do not know about tomorrow. What are you? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and shall do this or that. You don't know if your heart's going to stop beating before this service is over. You don't know if an oncoming car will just swerve right over into your lane and hit you head on on the way home today. You don't know whether the restaurant where you eat will have a deadly virus in the food, either through accident or malice. You don't know whether a stroke will paralyze you before this week is over. You don't know whether a man with a rifle will just jump out of his car and start fanning his bullets all over the place at Southdale this week. You don't know anything except one or two big events at the end of the world that God has told us about. Our lives are lived in a sea of uncertainty and an ocean of ignorance starting now. Have you ever thought how little you know? Therefore, risk is built into the very fabric of finite lives. You can't escape risk. You have to risk. There is no escape from risk. All your plans for tomorrow's activities can be shattered by a thousand unforeseen circumstances, whether you stay at home under the covers or drive on the freeways. You can't avoid taking risk. Your life is out of your hands. You don't know what is coming tomorrow. And so my burden this morning is to explode the myth of safety. I want to deliver you from the enchantment of security. I want to lead you out of the mirage of thinking that you're in control and that you can lead a risk-free life. The tragedy, the tragedy for Christians is how many of us fall prey to the deceptive enchantment of security all the while taking many risks for our own selves and then turn around and argue that we shouldn't take any risks for the cause of God lest we jeopardize the security that does not exist. It's a tragedy of living in a mirage. You're living in this mirage of security. You look around, you think it's real, and so you justify not taking any risks for God, all the while living on the cutting edge of risk for yourself every day. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that God looks down and sees his people 
enchanted by the mirage of security. My tactic to disenchant you from this enchantment with security is to simply tell you some Bible stories this morning. I said this is a sermon for kids because it's all stories and we're all kids. It is right to risk for the cause of God. That's the main point of the message. Let me tell you some stories. We'll start with the text that Mike read. You remember the situation? David is angry. Now, is it Amorites or Amalekites? Am Ammonites. I said it wrong in the other two services, and you said it right. And All right. He's angry with the Ammonites. And the reason he's angry is because they have shamed his messengers of peace, cut off half their beards, cut their garments off at midway, sent them out into the public. And, and David's big heart meets them halfway on their way back. They're so ashamed, and he sends them off to Jericho to let their beards grow out and get new clothes before they come home and meet their people. And he is angry. And they find out that he's angry, and so they ask the Syrians to help them because David is coming against them. And uh, Joab is put in command of the Israelite forces, and he is surrounded by the Syrians and the, the Ammonites. And he looks up to heaven, and there is no word from God about what he should do. And so he looks at Abishai, his brother. He says, Abishai, you take some men and go that way, and I'll take some men and go this way. And if you're weak, I'll help you. And if I'm weak, you'll help me. And then comes this great sentence at the end of verse 12 here in the text. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. May the Lord do what seems good to him. What does that mean? That means that Joab didn't know what was going to happen. He had tried to make a wise decision. Turns out he did make a wise decision. They won, but he didn't know. And you don't know in 99% of the decisions you make whether they're going to turn out right. In 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent of the decisions you make, you have no word from God. You have biblical principles. You have a sanctified imagination and wisdom. You weigh pros and cons. You do like Joab and you choose, but you don't know. And therefore, a good Christian motto is, may the Lord do what seems good to him. If my ministry prospers, it prospers. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. It is right to risk for the cause of God. Let's look at another story. Esther. Esther, Job, Psalms. If you wonder where it is in the Old Testament, chapter 4. You know this story, I hope. Mordecai, remember that name? Mordecai was a Jew. He was in exile along with the other Jews in Babylon. And he had a young cousin named Esther, and she was an orphan, and he adopted her into his family, and she became his daughter, virtually, 
and he brought her up, and she was gorgeous. So pretty that Ahasuerus the king took her to be his queen, didn't know she was a Jew. Haman is one of the wicked, proud princes of Ahasuerus. He hates Mordecai because Mordecai will not bow down to him. Neither will the Jews. And so he manipulates King Ahasuerus to make an edict that all Jews will be killed. Free for all for the Babylonians to kill Jews on an appointed day. And Mordecai finds out about this. And there's only one hope, Esther. The problem is there's a law. And the law says no one can approach the king unbidden. If they do, they'll be killed, except in the remote possibility he would lift his golden scepter and grant them to come. Mordecai says to Esther, try it. Risk it. And here's her answer in Esther 4, verses 15 to 16. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maids will also fast as you do. And then I will go into the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's great. That is simply fantastic. I hope all the women at Bethlehem are like Esther. Risk it. You don't know what's going to happen. What does it mean when she says, if I perish, I perish? It means just like Joab. She didn't know what would happen. There was no word from God. And I'll bet you she prayed for a word from God during those three days of fasting. She wasn't wasting her time. She was praying. And what was she praying? Gain access for your people. Will I make it? Can you give me assurance? And he gives her no assurance. He doesn't give you any assurance either for 99% of the decisions that you have to make in your life. And you may as well forget trying to live your life with special words from God. It is not his way. His way is to give you a scripture, infallible and inerrant principles. He is, his aim is to give you a Holy Spirit and a mind full of wisdom and then to weigh circumstances and then to be like Esther. Should I save my life and not let them know I'm a Jew? Or shall I risk my life to save my people? And she decides to risk her life. And her attitude is simply, if I perish, I perish. Do you live like that? Do you choose where you live like that? How to spend your money like that? Where you take your vacations like that? What your vocation is like that? If I perish, I perish. I'm not going to live for security. I'm going to live for love. Another story. Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. 
chapter 3. Now, you know this story. It is remarkably similar to Esther. They're in exile, Jews in exile, a king again. This time, it's not Mordecai, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar builds this great image of gold. And just like Haman, some of his wicked counselors twist his arm to make a decree that everybody who won't bow down to this image will be killed. Well, they know what's going to happen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thumb their nose at the image. And they stand there and won't bow down, just like Mordecai wouldn't bow down. Well, they take them before Nebuchadnezzar, and in verse 15 of uh, Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar threatens them with the fiery furnace. You're going to be thrown in there if you don't bow down. And here's their answer in verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, what, what is going on here? This is risk. It looks like they think they're going to be delivered. They have a great deal of confidence. Says, he will deliver us. But then they say, and if he doesn't, so be it. Just like Esther. If we burn, we burn. We're not bowing down to your image. Do you have that kind of freedom when you're faced with the cause of God? Or do you live for security? Joab, may the Lord do what seems good to him. Esther, if I perish, I perish. Shadrach, be it known to you, O king, even if he doesn't deliver us, so be it. Let's go to the New Testament. Who's the big risk taker in the New Testament? It's Paul. He lived his whole life, day in and day out, in nothing but risk, as we'll see in just a moment. Turn with me, if you want to, to Acts chapter 21. The situation is that Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. It says in chapter 19, verse 21, I think, he was bound in the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Why? Why did he want to go to Jerusalem? Well, you know what he'd been doing, don't you, from reading his letters? He'd been collecting money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He's got satchels full of money, and it isn't his. Now, there's a lesson here for money collectors, Christian money collectors, his face was set like flint to fulfill his mission with that money. And the Holy Spirit revealed to him every step of the way, you're in trouble if you go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 10 of chapter 21. A prophet named Agabus, this is Acts 21.10, a prophet named Agabus comes down from Judea. He does one of these symbolic things. He, he ties his hands up with Paul's belt like this, and then he ties his feet up with Paul's sash, I guess, or something like that. And then he walks in bound like this to the little worshiping community and he says, 
This is verse 10. So shall the Jews, this is what the Holy Spirit says, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns his girdle, deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This is God talking now. And he says, you better watch out, Paul. If you go up to Jerusalem, you're going to get it. And here's Paul's answer in verse 13. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 14 gives the resolution of the matter. And when he would not be persuaded, not even on the basis of a word from God, we ceased, Luke says, and said, the will of the Lord be done. Sound familiar? Let the Lord do what seems good to him. If he perishes, he perishes. In other words, Paul believes that it is for the cause of God that he's going up to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what's going to happen there in detail. Arrest and affliction for sure, but from whom? How severe? How long will it last? Will he ever escape? Will he die? He doesn't know. He just knows he is going. He is bound in the Holy Spirit for the cause of God to go to Jerusalem, come what may. May the Lord do what seems good to him. And it was right to risk for the cause of God. In fact, Paul's whole life was nothing but risk. Nothing but risk. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to follow and see one of the most amazing texts about a man's life and ministry that there is in the Bible. Paul wrote this letter before he had gone up to Jerusalem, and therefore he knew just what he was in store for. Let's read verses 24 following of 2 Corinthians 11. All of this is owing, he says, or we see, to taking risks for God. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Now stop a minute. That's incredible. Do you know what happens when you get 39 lashes on your back? It, your back comes open. It lays open. The flesh opens up. It's lacerated. And then perhaps if, if you don't get infected too bad, you heal. There's scars. And then a few months later, 39 more, and it's opened up again. And then if you're fortunate, not too much infection, and it heals again, maybe not so, so nicely this time with some tender spots. A few months later, it's opened up a third time with 39 more lashes, and it doesn't heal quite right this time. And a few weeks later, it's opened up again with 39 more lashes, and it doesn't heal right this time, and he's infected, and he's got this chronic disease, and again, 39 more lashes. What do you think his back looked like? And we worry about our tan. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I have been shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my people. 
Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, what does that mean to you? It means Paul never knew when the next blow was coming. Never. It says the roads weren't safe. The rivers weren't safe. The, the, the people of the Jews weren't safe. The Gentiles weren't safe. The cities weren't safe. The wilderness wasn't safe. The sea wasn't safe. His own brethren weren't safe because some of them were false. Where was safety? Nowhere. That's what I meant. It's a mirage. Safety is a mirage for people who live for the cause of God. It doesn't exist. He breathes the air of uncertainty. Just like you breathe the air of uncertainty. And there's no point trying to think that we live in a real world of safety and security when it's a mirage. He had two choices, run or risk. And according to Acts 20 verse 24, he says, I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the grace of God. I don't count my life of any value, he says, just to finish the call of God. If I perish, I perish. May the Lord do what seems good to him. It is right to risk for the cause of God. Your life, your money, your face. Now, what happens if you don't? One more story. It's a little less than three years now since Israel left Egypt through the Red Sea and the mighty work of God. They're standing congregated outside Canaan. And God says in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, send some spies in there to see what it's like and let them bring back message. And Caleb and Joshua and 10 others go in and for 40 days they scout. They come back with poles on their shoulders carrying clusters of grapes so big one person can't handle them. And Caleb takes the word, first of all, and he says, Let us go up at once. Occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the other spies speak up. Verse 31 of Numbers 13. We are not able to go up against it. They're stronger than we. Caleb failed to do what I'm trying to do this morning. He failed to deliver the Israelites from the mirage of security. You know what they said? They said, why don't we go back to Egypt instead of going in there and being killed by the sword? They wanted to go to the mirage of security in the sin city of Egypt. And then Joshua takes the word and he'll try and he says, the land which we possess, we pass, which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land for their bread for us. Their protection is gone and the Lord is with us. Do not fear 
And even Joshua could not explode the myth of security in Egypt. And so what did they do? They took up stones to stone them. Why is it wrong not to take risks? Why is it wrong to let yourself be sentenced to 40 years of meaningless wandering in the wilderness when you could have risked it for the promised land? Why? Is it because God has promised to prosper every risk you take for the cause of God? No. There are no such promises in the Bible. In the short run, there is no promise that any ministry you undertake will prosper. Take John the Baptist, for example. Risk, shall I, God, call Herod to account for divorcing his wife to take Herodias, his brother's wife? And he decides to risk it. Herod! You're a sinner. Put her away. It isn't right to have your brother's wife. And they chopped off his head. And God didn't lift a finger to stop it. And there is no promise he will lift a finger to make your ministry pro prosper. If it prospers, it prospers. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. May the Lord do what seems good to him. But will you risk it for God? Or will you play it safe and save face and save money and save life? Why are there so many graves in Africa and Asia? Of young missionaries who barely made it through their first year? It's because the Holy Spirit freed them from the enchantment of security and delivered them from the mirage of safety and brought them into the kingdom of His glory and His ministry. Well, what about you this morning? Are you caught in the enchantment of security? Do you live your life enslaved in the dream world of safety and the mirage of comfort? Are you at home in Egypt where at least you have the flesh pots and don't risk the sword in taking the promised land? Are there any men among us? Are there any men here who will say about a new challenge? A try it. And with Joab, may the Lord do what seems good to him. Are there any women here? Are there any women among us who will say with Esther, I'll try it. I've never done it before. And it's awfully risky. And I'm not that kind of person. But I'll try it. And if I perish, I perish. Oh, I hope so. God, may there be some men and some women among us like Joab and Esther. And what about our church? Is there any lesson here for Bethlehem in the next three years? 
or the next 12 years as the year 2000 comes on, is there any lesson here, Tom, for the long-range planning committee? There is. And that's next week's sermon. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I pray for the women that they would be like Esther. I pray for the men that they would be like Joab, not asking for private revelations so that they can know when their ventures will prosper and when they won't, but asking for courage, for boldness, for faith. Oh God, deliver us, deliver us, I pray, from the enchantment of security and from the mirage of security. Grant, O oh God, that we would follow you. And if we perish, we perish. And all the people said,